Hello and welcome to volume two of What's That Noise? I am your host, Derek Silva, joined once again by my close friend and colleague, Dr. Tommy Cook. How are you doing today, Tommy? I'm fantastic. Not a lot has changed in the past few hours. It seems we are ready for volume two after a short rest from a very productive volume one. And uh, I'm elated to be able to do this once more in my kitchen again. Absolutely. So we just finished watching the Toronto Maple Leafs lose to the Buffalo Sabres 3-2. to two. What are your thoughts on that, Tommy? What's to say? I mean, really, how can you have thoughts on this aside from that just being a garbage performance? It's the Sabres. It was really brutal. It was really brutal. I'm not sure what the Leafs were doing in that third period there, but they had a 2-1 to one lead in the game. The Leafs handle the best teams in the league. Yep. Why are these guys such a problem we just, for them? Earlier this week, we destroyed the Nashville Predators, which at the time were the best team in the NHL. We handled them. Up until that game, they were on a 14-game winning streak, 15-game winning streak. At home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, at home. There was no problem. Yeah. No problem for the Leafs. And then we'd lose today to one of the worst teams in the league at home. <sighs> a friend of mine before Christmas had asked me if I would consider going to this game, and I said... I can't do Monday night because I'll road be podcasting because I'll be podcasting with the, the, the good professor, Dr. Derek Silva. Uh, actually, it was because I have class tomorrow, Derek. But, you know, I'm really glad that I'm not in Buffalo losing. Wait, was the game in Buffalo? No, it was. No, this was in Toronto. Well, in that case, I'm really glad to have not have gone to Toronto. Yeah. And I'm particularly happy to be in our... In our wonderful kitchen here again, uh, ready for uh, volume two here. Volume two of What's That Noise, where we discuss all things related to noise, noise conceptualized as anything we like to talk about. So what, it is, what is it that we are going to talk about today, Tommy? What it is, is the NCAA, my friend. <laughs> the NCAA. Right now, we're going through March Madness, and we're kind of at the end of it. Uh, it is now the final four. In March Madness, which is the uh, collegiate men's Division One uh, football or uh, ba- a base <laughs> basketball, <laughs> it ain't hockey. We should determine that much. <laughs> basketball championship. There's also the Final Four of women's basketball happening uh, as well. But I've been noticing on my Twitter nonstop. So on my Twitter, I uh, I have sport listed as one of my sort of areas of expertise as a, as a a scholar. Whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Yeah. I know you, I, I knew your work before you came to Canada, and I knew that you did terrorism studies. How do you do sports too? I'm really, really interested in expertise. I'm really, really, really interested in how we create ideas of what an expert is, whom an expert is, and what that means for us as society. One of the areas in which I'm interested in is how we scout or how we create expert knowledges about uh, collegiate and high school uh, football players is where my uh, research has taken me, but any athlete uh, uh, at all, really. So that brings uh, the research uh, side of my sport interest into play. The things you learn every day. I know, right? I told myself, so a funny story, um, and uh, potentially one of our listeners, his name is Lee, he, he's one of my very best friends, and I told him once that I would never uh, bring things that I love into my work, 
because I tend to be critical. I tend to be a, a sort of critical scholar. So I said, I'm not going to bring dogs into my uh, sociology like Donna <laughs> Haraway. I am not going to be bringing sport into my sociology because I, you know, I love sport. And the second you bring in your uh, interest into uh, or your loves, your passions into your, your science, uh, it's tough to, to not be critical of those things. And then I started doing it. Okay, well, so we, we've determined that you're a sociologist of terrorism and you're a sociologist of sport. And we're going to segue that to not talk about NCAA baseball, to not talk about NCAA hockey. We're going to talk about NCAA basketball. Basketball. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about the NCAA, particularly because, like I said, my Twitter feed has just been destroyed with questions of whether or not student athletes should be paid. Uh, and this seems to be like the question everyone wants to chat about. Uh, and I'm seeing tweets nonstop about it, particularly uh, when you think of the NCAA March Madness tournament, it brings in something like 80% of the revenue for the NCAA and its member institutions. Whoa, 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 whoa. how much? Like 80%. So revenue for the NCAA just crossed a billion dollars for the first time. <gasps> the NCAA as an overarching conglomerate, which is actually just a creation of a whole bunch of member institutions banding together right um has now uh over gone over a billion dollars in revenue for the first time ever a billion dollars okay so this is not something i knew Mm. i mean i understood what ncaa stood for before you and i sitting down at my kitchen table again and talking about this i had an understanding and appreciation of the different kinds of divisions in the u.s and how competitive it i've i've got friends that are just absolutely diehard michigan fans of course we're in london ontario yeah you know it's so it's close. that but it's also the crazy colors and the mm, the stuff on the, the big house the atmosphere yeah so i mean that culture is a big part of where we are in london the big great amazing town of london ontario canada but um you know the the, the finances behind this i knew this was a problem i spent so much time man in toronto flying down the 407 from thornhill (laughs) and markham (laughs) to go to york campus seven and a half kilometers away yeah you would think what what is that going to take you really 20 minutes 15 minutes on the highway no man an hour and a half two hours easy on the 407 you have to pay to use the 407 so i would sit in these long lineups listening to the radio and one of my favorite radio stations in the world is the fan 590 mm-hmm. listen to tim and sid mm-hmm. could dial over to police lunch you know listen to some tsn radio and the ncaa would constantly come up and i knew about the controversies around students being paid or not being paid i learned about uh, some of the scandals i I'd actually learned through tim and sid about uh, a number of arrests in September of last year. Mm-hmm. About 10 people, I think, were arrested by the FBI for, for bribery and such. And I know a lot of this stems back to um, the question of whether or not the NCAA should be making money or profiting off of athletes' uh, likeness, for example. But the, the source of the noise for me, even as somebody who's listened to this in a huge sports market like Toronto, stuck in traffic, is what the heck is a student-athlete? This, for me, is a lot of noise here. I don't know precisely how the NCAA defines student-athlete. I suspect that my own, my own understanding 
having taught student athletes here at Western University for a number of years is going to be radically different. I had a number of Olympic hopefuls teaching uh, as a, a teaching assistant at York University for four or five years. And uh, I, I just really fundamentally do not understand how we come to define something like student-athlete when you start telling me that the NCAA makes that much money. So where do we proceed here? How can we make sense of this? I think the first place to go in this realm is to look back, uh, take a little historical tour of how the idea of the student-athlete became the dominant framework by which we understand collegiate athletics. So I'll preface this by saying that I actually prefer the term collegiate athlete when you're thinking of a, and that's not my uh, creation. It's actually something I was uh, informed of or, or something uh, that I, I gathered in a discussion with Dr. Richard Seldahl from the University of South Carolina. And uh, he is one of the preeminent scholars in this area that um, really has been an advocate of collegiate athletes um, for many, many years. And he teaches in the uh, sport uh, or Collegiate Sport Research Institute, uh, or he organizes the Collegiate Sport Research Institute at, at University of South Carolina. And he told me, Derek, it's like, the, if, by using the term student-athlete, you're actually reaffirming this discourse that they're a student first and athlete second. Um, that is uh, potentially an issue when you get to the historical origins of the term. The term was actually created by a man named Walter Byers. Walter Byers was the first executive director of the NCAA. And what he did was, is he was uh, organizing a collectivity of universities, and he was seeing that places like Harvard and Yale, who were at the head at that time in the 1960s, were at the head of this like sort of football craze, and they were starting to hire uh, 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 collegiate football players uh, to play for their football teams because they realized that they could sell tickets. And these players started kind of reflecting and saying, ah, oh, we're kind of like employees. So we should get, you know, we, we should qualify for workman's compensation. So then they started to claim workman's compensation when they, when they would get injured. And Walter Byers saw these threats or saw this issue and said, we need to delineate these people as athletes, not employees. So he constructed this term student athlete. And it is, to this day, remained relatively unchanged from his first uh, idea or his first uh, uh, codification of this term into, uh, into NCAA policy. And this man also led the rapid expansion of the NCAA as, as an institution as we know it today, as a mass commercialized institution that uh, uh, now brings in a billion dollars. A lot of that can be traced back to this one man and the one issue of workman's compensation. So there's a little person standing in the back of my head. He's literally inside the back of my head punching my skull saying, ask Derek to talk about why using the term student-athlete reifies this discourse this is something you touched on earlier and i want you to explain this a little bit mm -hmm. because the little person is really angry so by virtue of saying student athlete as opposed to collegiate athlete i'm perpetuating some sort of politics is that right yeah when you when you turn on the the television and you watch these march madness games for instance 
and you are really interested and invested in one particular team, and then that team does a press conference after that game. They're introduced as student-athlete Tommy Cook, student-athlete Derek Silva, student-athlete Steve Smith, whatever it is. Great. Please welcome our student-athletes. It is not only a term that is written and codified in NCAA policy, but it's also a cultural term that has been now used so widely in our media apparatus and our uh, cultural narrative about collegiate athletes that the very term instills a particular image in our minds. So one of the first ways to move beyond, potentially beyond some of the issues related with this question of whether or not we should pay student-athletes or whether or not it's appropriate uh, to use the term uh, student-athlete, uh, that's one way to move forward is to no longer even use the, the very term. Okay, I see. This is making a lot more sense now. The, the little person in my head has calmed down a little bit, and it's wondering if one of the implications of um, perhaps switching to collegiate athlete as opposed to student athlete is that you're drawing attention to the relationship between the athlete and the college or the university. Are we signaling that they are indeed one and the same? Is that, is that what we gather by referring to uh, athletes as collegiate athletes, that they are as much a part of the college as the team itself and the brand? I, I think that we shift the focus away from the student-first mentality, that this athlete is a student-athlete first, or that this, this, this athlete should be a student first in our minds and an athlete second in our minds. When you have a mass commercialization uh, and a mass commercialized program like the NCAA and like many member institutions, they're not, for the most part, at least in the revenue generating sports, they're not students first. They're, they might be collegiate athletes, but they are certainly, I don't want to say certainly, they are potentially not student athletes first. That's the, that's the discourse, right? That, that's what a lot of people want to throw out and say. That these are, they're collegiate athletes. They're, they're in college or they're, they're, they're there to get an education first. And it's just, uh, they, they're given a scholarship and a free ride and that's what we give them and they're there to play college football or college basketball when really they're much more closely aligned with workers and employees so using the term student athlete actually moves the center or the narrative away from that towards their students first and that has continued to be a, a very uh a useful or a very uh, uh efficient way to counter any uh, questions of this system. I had once heard a listener on one of Tim and Sid's shows while I was in one of those crazy traffic jams uh, draw attention to the fact that student athletes benefit by being a student athlete. They because, absolutely do. Because they're attending an institution that they may otherwise have no shot at actually participating in academically. I wonder if there's a change then by shifting the terms that we use from student athlete to collegiate athlete. Does, is there like a corresponding shift in the discourse 
about the expectations academically for those particular individuals. Let me ask you this one question. <laughs> okay. Can you think of a, a, an environment or a situation in which anyone over the age of 18 is not allowed to seek out market value for their work? The military. Is that not seeking out market value? If they leave the military, maybe they can. But do you get paid to be in the, in the military? Sure. Competitive, fair yeah. value? Is that not your market value or potentially your market value? It might be your choice. And you might, be, you might have other things other than financial gain mm -hmm. to, to join the military. But is that not a reflection of at least something close to your market value? It's a great question. I have another question for you. Okay. I you like questions. You are a star student mm -hmm. at Western University. Fourth year, you have a full academic scholarship. So it pays, you pay, all your tuition is paid. That definitely didn't happen. I'm just saying. <laughs> I like the hypothetical because that definitely didn't happen. <laughs> so it happens. Okay. And you are full academic scholarship. Right, right. And you are a fantastic student. And I mean, I, Tommy, I mean, you are the best student I've ever seen in my entire life. I really like the way this is going. Yeah. And you write a book in my sociology of terrorism class. A book? You write a book. You don't just write a paper. How you don't long write a term paper. Book? This long? book is 300 pages. And, and it's not, it's not a, a research book. It's actually going to go to... Uh, a mainstream publisher. It's going to be a New York Times bestseller. You have just written a New York Times bestseller. If I end up dreaming about this tonight, I'm going to have to wake up tomorrow morning realizing that none of this actually happened. Fair. You want to talk about market value tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. But you write that in my class and then you go publish it. Okay. I publish it. 300 pages. 300 pages. Stellar book. And Groundbreaking. And it sells, it sells, it sells, it sells. And you receive a royalty check. Mm -hmm. Is that yours? Gosh darn it, right, it is, is my work. Or is it the university's? Well, I did all of the work at home on my own. No, but you're on a, you, you would not have the tools to write this book had you not been enrolled and on a full scholarship at Western University. Okay, so I'm, I'm paid to produce ideas, to cultivate new perspectives. I am paid to represent the university, some of which I do in the classroom. Most of my work is done. Should the fruits of my labor be split? Because not the institution... Not split, no, no, not, not split. We're talking about the institution gets all of it or you get none of it. Why does it have to be zero-sum? Why can't it just be a split? Apply that same I got logic. Rent, man. Apply I got this same logic. I've got to eat. Apply the same logic to the NCAA. Is it really that bad? It's not as bad as people tend to think of it. So we a full scholarship at a Division One NCAA institution gives you room and board, tuition, so you get food, you get um, lodging. And you get all of the positives. You, get, you also get um, nutrition advice, working out, 
um, free access to like athletic training, mm-hmm. tutor, like tutoring, a whole bunch of things. Family that... and friends get tickets to games? No. Oh. No, absolutely okay. not. I think family does on senior day, um, but not to every single game. Um, but most of your friends at the institution will get tickets to the games through their own. And some institutions allow students, you know, first right to certain games, right? Isn't this a thing in Michigan? I don't, I'm not entirely sure. So I'm not going to say something I'll look up for later. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say certainly one way or the other, but, um, so students, student athletes on a full scholarship might get room board tuition, uh, access to a whole bunch of very useful things, nutrition advice, uh, all those things, uh, tutoring, all these things that I'm uh, education advice, professional, uh, advice. Uh, and then many get what is considered a cost of living top up, which is like a check sent to them directly, which is payment, but it's payment allowed by the NCAA, which uh, if you live in LA, there's a high cost of living. The tuition and room and board doesn't cover like the fact that I need $5 in my pocket. So is this part of what's considered a scholarship in the sense that you're going to be charged tuition anyways, and you have to use that money to pay down the tuition? No, it's considered a, a, a bonus it's above on and top beyond. of that. And it's, it's been given potentially uh, as a way to sort of um, pacify certain movements towards unionization and towards um, these debates about payment of student athletes. Okay, so I've got two questions yeah. for you in response to all this. This is really elucidating. It's interesting. I love how you set me up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, with regards to thinking about like the fruits of my labor and my associations and, you know, where money should go because of certain work done. My first question to you is what is the profit margin? Like whether, you know, directly or not, Mm -hmm. what do, what do we think the profit margin is for the NCAA? And secondly, what the heck is your perspective on this? I mean, there's, there's a certain amount of noise that I've identified here. (laughs) This is student versus collegiate athlete. And I, as far as I can tell, for the first time in the quarter of year that I've known you, the half year that I've known you, I don't know where it is that you're coming from. Wait, are, are you intervening in this discourse here? Is, is there a perspective that you're embracing? Like, wh- where's your clairvoyance here? Because I'm not quite sure where you stand. Okay, so two things. The profit margin is difficult to come by for a variety of reasons. Um, the first would be that. Uh, collegiate athletic programs are very good at spending money. Hmm. They're very good at spending money on coaches, on on training staff, on assistant coaches, on uh, video people, on rapid expansion of infrastructure, on uh, sending money to institutions to uh, help out with potential losses elsewhere. A whole bunch of uh, uh, ways in which money can be spent. And if you look at University of Alabama, for instance, uh, they they every year they come out with a new video showing off their amazing uh, uh, infrastructure for recruits and uh, gets uh, they get recruits to come and look at their speakers inside of their like little lockers and stuff. And like they've got music and jacuzzis everywhere and all these different things. That money comes from somewhere. Right. Right. That money comes out of something, and that is largely the athletic department budget. So it's really easy to, at the end of the day, be an athletic department and say you made no money because you've spent it everywhere. So that's one potential way. Uh, and Nick Saban makes over $11 million. 
He's a coach of uh, Alabama. $11 million. $11 million. $11 million per year. There are Maple Leafs right now that don't make anywhere near that, Derek. Babcock doesn't make that. There is not a single Maple Leaf that makes over $6.25 million. Professional. Professional sport. It'll and be Matthews next year. But. It certainly will. He'll probably make 12 to 13. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so Nick Saban makes a lot, a lot of money. So that's one potential way to get right. right. So the margins is sort of one, uh, one thing. And there's a lot of news stories out there that say like only 20% of uh, FBS one, which is the highest level of college football right. actually are making any money. It's because they're all spending money too much. I, I hypothesize, I shouldn't say for certain I need the data in front right, of me. Right. But I hypothesize that it's a lot of spending going on and not a lot of actual accounting for the books. As if the, the, the job of the athletic department was to make money. So the second question of where do I stand on this? And I think that's an, a very important question. I think that I stand first and foremost on giving collegiate athletes a voice at the decision-making table. Right now, the NCAA as an institution is a conglomerate. It's a, it's a creation of its member institutions. The member institutions hire the president of the NCAA, and the president of the NCAA is a representative of a whole bunch of uh, different member institutions. And that NCAA has a monopoly over the rules that are enforced as given by the uh, member institutions, but also the enforcement. So they make the rules and they also enforce the rules. And it gives very little leeway for uh, student athletes or collegiate athletes to resist, to counter, or to even understand why these decisions are being made. So I think the first step is to give collegiate athletes a voice at the table and again that's not coming from me that's actually coming from people uh like walter byer or like uh, uh richard saudal and uh taylor branch who is a uh, an historian in this area that does a lot of research in this area and that's their perspective and i take their perspective because it's based on an empirical reality that i can see and interesting developments that i can see so my my take, my perspective on this is give collegiate athletes a voice at the table. Everything else will sort itself out. An actual, real voice. Well, that provides a lot more clairvoyance amongst the noise in, in my mind. And uh, once more, the, the loud little purse in the back of my head is shut up as a, as a result of your assistance. Uh, it was interesting getting a little bit of extra noise in the background. A, a little there. bit of extra noise my, back there. So we really are sitting in my kitchen. Absolutely. In a, a very old house with some fairly tall ceilings. And we're actually sort of situated at a kitchen table between the kitchen and the living room. And all that racket in the background was my roommate, Matt Truman. He's finishing up his master's shout, of fine art. shouting about, does he have a Twitter too? Uh, no, I don't think he has a Twitter. I know he's on Instagram. Oh. I believe it's Matthew Truman Art. So there's your shout out, Matt. Wow. He, he actually can't hear us because he just stepped out of the house. Apparently, tomorrow is garbage day. So he's, he's taking out the blue box. So he's probably coming right back so in. So yeah, we're going bang, to get, bang, bang. yeah, there's going to be a little bit more noise in the background, but that's fine. I mean, maybe we even like invite him and sit down. But uh, um, I, I guess the, the matter at hand is just seeing if we can 
uh, find a little bit more clarity in all of this. I mean, uh, looking at student collegiate athlete, I've come to understand the stakes a lot more. And um, I think working towards a position of allowing the students themselves to have a voice, whether that's, you know, through direct representation, whether that's through unions or however. That's, but I, that's an interesting point. But um, I still wonder about whether or not they're going to ask for fair compensation. I mean, in as far as I understand it, Derek, one of the largest issues with regards to the position of collegiate athletes in the NCAA profit scenario is that they are not being paid for a crazy amount of revenue mm -hmm. being produced mm -hmm. by these by these institutions and through these events. How many of these students are going to be asking for, for proper uh, supplementation for the work they're producing? And I, that's fully well understanding mm -hmm. and taking into account the fact that they are receiving all of these extra supports and these different systems that mm -hmm. you identified at the beginning of our chat. But what about the dollar value after this? There are going to be students who get injured who are not going to be able to continue pursuing their mm -hmm. sport it's going to come at the cost of not actually being able to commit to the academics that come with being a collegiate or uh, student athlete. Mm -hmm. So how, how can we disentangle some of that complexity? I think that the complexity argument is actually used as an, an argument that at least I can't fully understand because people will say, well, how do you pay uh, the, the racquetball team and the golf team and the equestrian team and the rowing team the same or how do we make sure that's fair when you compare it to the football team and the basketball team the solution or potentially one of the solutions uh, or one of the things we need to move beyond is that we don't pay people in any realm of social life or economic life i should say equitably we pay based on your marketable skills I can't think of another jaw or another company that pays every individual the same amount of money. So that means that a football player who is going to go or who is a, in a revenue sport is going to make more than the golfing team, than the equestrian team, than the rowing team. And you know what? That's okay. I think our first barrier is to get over the, that question. What that question is almost a non-question because in every other realm of life we have a hierarchy of payment if you are a uh, service level employee you get paid x amount of dollars and if you are the ceo of a company you get x amount of dollars times 10 or in some cases times a million so if we can figure it out in every other realm of life why can't we figure it out at the ncaa level I don't know. I mean, this is why you're the sociologist that does terrorism studies and sport, right? The person who brings in the passion that they didn't necessarily want to bring in. And as a result, I've learned a lot about this. I come into this uh, not knowing a heck of a lot about it. And it's, it's been interesting for me in the sense that I wasn't expecting you to say this. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't anticipating that you would have this perspective. And, and it's inconsequential to me. It doesn't matter. I mean, this is the point of what we're doing. Yeah. We're going to bring topics to the table that are familiar to some of us, completely alien to the rest. Yeah. And as we continue to bring in different interviewees and people that are going to identify for us their own interpretation of what's noisy. I can't wait to hear about other people's noise. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, if we can alter some perspectives and, 
really show people how how difficult and different it is to have different starting points to identify different kinds of noises and different ways of dealing with that i think we're we're going to start appreciating that uh, there's a multitude of different people that need to join in on conversations just by virtue of the fact that they haven't had a chance to speak up to the noise so they haven't had an opportunity to start parsing it and finding meaningfulness to pull an object out of something that's that's clouded and shrouded otherwise so you and i've talked a little bit about some other different topics that we could be pursuing we've also talked a little bit about different kinds of uh, people that we could be interviewing i already mentioned my roommate who just came <laughs> who has been so kind to take out the blue boxes after a long night of working down at the university so we could we could get matt truman and we can talk about his work absolutely matt's been doing some really fascinating stuff with uh, time and clocks and different perceptions of time uh, in fact there's there's a at least an hour's worth of conversation there alone and trying to figure out um, what it is that you and i could ask him and speaking of of time it it's actually interesting because we're trying to nail down an appropriate time for this particular podcast and we're trying to to play with whether or not we should try to cap it or whether we should just yeah you know that's a that's a great question i'm not sure how to answer it quite yet it's going to come from feedback and some deliberate decision making but i think for the time being (laughs) that's a bad pun that's really stupid (laughs) (laughs) why don't we uh why don't we wrap up by uh maybe identifying a couple other topics that we can explore and a couple other people that we can bring to the table and then uh We'll cut it off there because I think the first episode we went about like 55 minutes. Is that true? 56 minutes. And what are we at right now? We're at 35. Yeah, we should stop. Yeah, which is a a nice time, I think. I think 30 minutes for a podcast. So where do you want to go with this next? I want to to chat about things I know nothing about. Whether it be uh, gun violence. That's an interesting topic that's going on in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Whether that be how to utilize noise as a tool for resistance. That's something that would be fascinating for me. Whether it be on race and religion and the nexus or nexi of religion and race and culture and uh, a variety of social issues, that would be fascinating. I'm just interested in, in learning something about something that I know nothing about. Or very little about. And I am in turn very interested in not only learning about things that I haven't got a clue about, but to have people who are familiar with those alien things to me tell me what is confusing for them Absolutely. and how they're going to work through it. Absolutely. So we've got Matt Truman potentially teed up. We can start. Let's shout out Ben Muller again. Shout out to Ben Muller and, and Dr. David Lyon. Of course, those two gentlemen will be harassed. Dr. Ben Muller does a lot of uh, work on biometrics and the biometric state. Fascinating accounts of surveillance, of security, of national security, of issues related to mobility. Absolutely fascinating. And of course, uh, David Lyon at Queen's University is a legend of surveillance studies. Arguably, the field wouldn't exist as such without him. I mean, his, his name speaks for itself. Yeah. So those are two we will definitely pursue thereafter. And it, I, I wouldn't mind uh, considering opening up to some more community-based issues as well. Mental health is a big focus in our community here in London, yeah. Ontario. It's, it's a 
nationwide discourse that is really ramping up, especially in the context of the last year. And um, aside from that, I, I wouldn't mind uh, cracking into some concussion issues. Oh, uh, when you get into the sports stuff, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely, concussion. Uh, some, some issues with CTE uh, and some of the implications for not just sport, but society as a whole is, is, is fascinating. We have world leaders in this city that investigate and intervene in concussion issues. So shout out to anyone who thinks that they can bring something to the <laughs> pod uh, on those issues. We're going to be looking, uh, and hopefully we can get a few uh, amazing people to come and chat about what, what's that noise in their particular field. So on that note, I would like to wrap this up and say thank you again to my co-host, Dr. Tommy Cook. And uh, do you have anything else to say? Nothing aside from a thank you to uh, the wonderful Dr. Derek Silva. Thanks very much Thanks for doctor. doing this again and kicking around in the kitchen again. For oh, another episode. I, I love your kitchen. It's very, uh, it's very uh, quaint and comfortable. Can you hear the, the cat water thing? I can't. No. Nice. Probably because I kicked it on the way to the washroom. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. And please feel free to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Derek Krim. And Tommy is at Thomas N. Cook with an E. Got it. Follow us on Twitter. DM us. Slide into our DMs. Do whatever you like. Thank you for listening to What's That Noise. And we will see you or talk to you, I guess, on the next one. Peace.